Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, April 29th, and today I'll be speaking with Teddy Schleifer about just how much Elon Musk's reputation has changed over the last couple of years and why he is suddenly so polarizing. And later on in the show, Eric Gardner will be here to tell us what he's watching over the weekend. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. Happy White House Correspondents Dinner weekend to all of you dorks in Washington. As a treat for you guys, we're having a very West Coast conversation here. I'm in LA and I'm joined by Teddy Schleifer, who's posted up in the Bay Area. How you doing, man? Good. Glad not to be at the... Uh, still at the is, it, is it still at the Washington Hilton? Uh, I feel like I lived two blocks away. Is, has it moved? I used to live there too. Yeah, oh, I think wow. it's still there. Yeah. Well, us, us DC expats are um, free from the... Uh, list hopping and just general one-upsmanship of <laughs> White House Correspondents Dinner Weekend. I have no better way to describe it. Um, well, speaking of the West Coast, obviously the big news in tech and media this week is Elon Musk's all but certain takeover of Twitter, unless he backs out at the last minute. We've seen all the tweets of people on the left losing their minds over this and calling him a fascist and threatening to quit Twitter. And on the right, calling this a huge victory for free speech and that he's going to let Trump back on the platform. Predictably, people are putting their politics before any attempt at, you know, reason, context, nuance. So how are people in Silicon Valley and San Francisco receiving this news? Uh, and have you also talked to anyone who like works at Twitter right now? It's interesting. He wasn't always this kind of divisive, polarizing, controversial figure in tech or kind of broadly in society. You know, I was talking with an educated uh, a friend of mine the other day who was surprised that Elon was the wealthiest guy in the world. A lot of his profile has really come in the last two or three years, so much so that like people on the right are celebrating this, this victory for free speech and this victory for conservatism. You might forget that, that Elon Musk's wealth comes from a company trying to solve climate change. You know, it's interesting just, just kind of the, the polling on kind of Elon over time. When I was back at Recode, 
at my old gig, we, we did a poll on kind of how people felt about Elon. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was kind of interesting because this is what this poll was taken in February, 2021. So not that long ago, but also in, in the uh, annals of history and the annals of, of kind of Elon history, 2021 and the, was before so much of kind of the public was exposed to this guy. Let me just read you some of the numbers. So he was among Democrats. His favorability was 52 to 22. So up 30, uh, pretty, pretty good candidate in a Democratic primary. And among Republicans, uh, it was 48-25, favorable, unfavorable. So like this guy was very popular kind of across the board and was not this politically polarizing figure 18 months ago, certainly. Pew did a poll recently, which found that Elon's net favorability was plus 50 with Republicans <laughs> and minus 10 with Democrats. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it just shows how like Elon's political profile has totally shifted over the last year or really like last couple of years as he's become sort of a COVID denier, as he has become much more of a polarizing figure about free speech. You know, now Elon uh, is being celebrated, is very much coded as a right wing figure. And he's being celebrated to answer your question by conservatives in tech who have felt depressed and liberals, you're correct, are, are losing their mind over Elon. And I just find the political polarization of this guy who, Three years ago, people might not even know who he was. I think the left makes a mistake by mapping the term free speech onto conservative or or coding it as conservative or Republican. I mean, um, obviously, once free speech drifts into hate speech or homophobia or transphobia, then it becomes a problem. But, you know, even President Obama in his speech at Stanford said, you know, he believes the answer to free speech is more good speech, you know? And I think the American public at large believes that it's sort of enshrined in in our (laughs) country's scripture that free speech is generally a good thing. And so, you know, Musk is out there harping over this free speech issue. People on both sides of the political debate see that as a political message. But I think broadly speaking, free speech as a a term of art is generally agreed upon. And, And I only say that to ask you, like, what are his political beliefs? Just because he like criticizes Joe Biden for not hyping up Tesla's efforts to to make the economy greener, does that make him a Republican or just a guy who's like triggered by the fact that he wants a shout out from Joe Biden in his latest speech about green cars? I think it's kind of hard, honestly, to disentangle the tweets from Elon's public political persona. I mean, I mean, he has become over the last couple of years you know, just an erratic late night, you know, 3 a.m. tweeter. And, and the tweets, as much as they offer insight into, into his politics, I mean, look, his attention for all of the beliefs he may have about social issues. And, you know, he famously said a couple months ago that he didn't want to weigh in on the, tex- on the Texas abortion law because he tries to, quote unquote, stay out of politics. He has punted and kind of stiff-armed the right at times. But the tweets, I think, have really become what the average person knows about Elon's politics. And like his attention is very clearly on what could be considered, you know, anti quote unquote woke issues. I'm sure he believes in general kind of lefty social values. But when you think about how he is spending his time and frankly, how he is using his platform with, I think, 85 million followers, it's not like an insignificant question about what he tweets. Over the last couple of days, I've been wondering if he knows what he's getting into. Like Bill Bill has- talked about, does Elon know what he's getting into financially? I mean, he tweeted 
For Twitter to deserve public trust, it must be politically neutral, which effectively means upsetting the far right and the far left equally. That's very much like a kind of like a sixth graders, uh, yeah, like view, view of content moderation. And then Peter, obviously, you work at a tech company. You and I are friends who work at tech companies. These are like hard decisions about what to leave up and what to take down. And it kind of feels like he's shooting from the hip in a way that maybe will improve the company, but but certainly is going to remake this thing in the image of one particular guy with one particular view of the world. Yeah, I mean, like every big tech company, most publicly traded big tech companies included these days, have a visionary founder who has a certain point of view about how their platform should work and probably has certain political views. But because they are accountable to shareholders and the public markets, they put in place teams and experts who make decisions around these things. And even the good ones, at least, even when they have opinions, hopefully delegate to those teams to make calls around content moderation, around trust and safety, around legal issues. And it's just very hard to imagine Elon Musk sitting back and not involving himself in every sort of decision or lever of the company, especially because he's such a power Twitter user and he'll frequently be like viewing the product from the public square in versus from inside the company out, you know, like he's already responding to tweets and stories about what's happening inside Twitter and calling balls and strikes. It seems like they're in for a very tumultuous road, which brings me back to my first question. I mean, I don't know, like are people around town in San Francisco and Oakland, like, who work at Twitter, like losing their minds over this. I mean, look, he's clearly daring um, staff to to stage some sort of mutiny here. I mean, look, this is a long way from closing. And I think the next three to six months are going to be painful or or dramatic or certainly going to make for great stories just because he is, you know, coming in guns blazing, criticizing current executives. Clearly the, the leaks that are going to emerge from Twitter are going to put the Trump palace intrigue to shame, just given the the number of high-profile, powerful executives who clearly are at war with a new owner of a company who uh, you know clearly has a different opinion about the quality of their work over the last couple of years. I mean, Twitter employees are very earnest. I would say overall, like I think I feel mm-hmm. like lots of them love the company and, and sort of are are candid about their attempts to reckon with the, the platform's problems, like even the founders, I would say so, like Jack Dorsey and, and Ev Williams and Biz Stone, you know, have are somewhat, somewhat more touchy-feely and just believe that the company can do better and believe in kind of building in plain sight. And now that it's sort of being weaponized against them by this sort of brash owner who, who is earnest in his own way, but is ultimately coming in with a gun loaded, you know, already taking yeah. shots at executives on a deal that hasn't even closed yet. So I think there's a long way to go between today when we're recording this and this deal closing and and the blood that's going to be shed could be pretty extraordinary. Um, not just talking about layoffs. I'm, I'm talking about just egos bruised and work deleted. It's gonna be pretty ugly. Oh, yeah. I mean, like proprietary information, leaks, like this will be a original series on Hulu in four years. Moving all the DMs to Signal this week. That's true. <laughs> true. Yeah. All right, Teddy. Thanks, man. Keep on it. Talk soon. You bet.
At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com therapy60. Welcome back, everyone. Now let's take a quick minute to see what's going on with Eric Gardner on his beat right now. Thanks, Peter. I've been following three things, really. Uh, First thing was uh, Jerry West's complaint over the new Lakers series. I think this docudrama about the the Lakers from the 1980s is on its way towards being a hit. It's already been renewed for a second season, but boy, oh boy, do, do former players and executives for the team really hate it. Only Jerry West, though, has hinted at a lawsuit. For those who, who don't know who he is, he's an NBA legend, a former player who, who literally is on the NBA's logo. In 1979, he, he stepped down as Lakers coach. The show presents him as a bit of an eccentric character going through some inner turmoil. And in a letter to HBO, his lawyer objected to his portrayal as quote unquote, out of control, intoxicated rageaholic. Do I think he has a defamation case? Uh, Not really. There have been many cases over movies and TV shows based on true events like Hurt Locker, Wolf of Wall Street, Straight Outta Compton, and judges have have widely concluded that the First Amendment gives filmmakers great latitude to fictionalize. Of course, there'll always be a few odd cases that come along and will give producers some pause. In, In my most recent newsletter, I wrote about one case over the Netflix series Queen's Gambit that HBO should probably think about. In particular, the judge's conclusion here was that producers departed from what was in the book, and so they may have known the truth and ignored it. Overall, though, with respect to West and winning time, I I think it's going to be tough for a retired executive in his mid-80s to show he was really defamed by broad characterizations. The second thing that I'm looking at is who Joe Biden has just nominated to the EOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Let me step back for a second. Somewhere between the time they announced the wrong best picture and the time that Will Smith slapped Chris Rock, the most buzzworthy moment at the Oscars was Frances McDormand getting on stage to accept her award for best actress and telling everyone in the industry they should think about inclusion writers. What's an inclusion writer? Well, it's basically a contractual addendum where a studio makes certain pledges to achieve diversity. The idea is that a big name actor like Michael B. Jordan will do a film, but he'll only do it if the studio agrees to this inclusion writer. Anyway, for a moment, everyone was buzzing about inclusion writers, thinking it was the way that they were going to solve inclusion problems in the industry. 
But now, after investigating it, everyone has largely forgotten about them, except for the fact that Biden has just nominated an attorney named Kalpana Kotago to the EEOC. She helped create the inclusion rider. She's given lectures, including a TED talk about Hollywood's discrimination problems. And, and she's been pitching in this solution, inclusion rider, for years. Now, as I write, she's headed to become the swing vote on the nation's workplace civil rights agency. And this is going to be interesting to watch because of her deep familiarity with the industry's problems and the fact that the EOC has been asked to investigate discrimination in Hollywood in the past. So we could see more active enforcement. Finally, going into this weekend, I think there will be a lot of people watching the NFL draft. And, you know, there will be a few people over the next few days who will think about how weird it is that 32 teams are allowed to conspire with each other and assign rights to young men. I mean, in most industries, you get to pick your employer. But in the NFL, you're a young player just out of college and you're assigned a team and you have to move and you really don't have much choice about it. And you can't really even negotiate your salary too because that's set as well. Well, the truth is that for one brief time in the mid-1970s, it looked like the NFL draft was going to be deemed illegal. What happened was that the NFL draft dates back to 1935, but in 1968, the Washington football team drafted a player named Yazoo Smith. Two years later, after Smith experienced a career-ending neck injury, he sued the NFL alleging an antitrust violation. And guess what? He won. A federal judge and then an appeals court in 1977 ruled in his favor. So why did the draft not go away? Well, it was because the league around this same time had a plan B. They started negotiating with the union and got the Players Association to basically sign off on the draft. There's something in antitrust law called the non-statutory labor exemption, which basically means that stuff that would ordinarily be deemed an antitrust violation becomes kosher so long as the stuff is collectively bargained. And that's how the NFL was able to bless its draft. Though really the, the story doesn't stop there because a few years later, a basketball player named Leon Wood came along and he he said, I wasn't part of the union when they negotiated the NBA draft, so it shouldn't apply to me. And he sued the NBA over that, but the judge rejected his arguments. The judge basically said, hey, if you have a problem with the arrangement, sue the union for not adequately representing you. So there you go. If, if people are watching the draft this weekend and they have a problem with what's going on, they should blame the Players Association as much as the league. Thanks, Peter, for having me. Uh, I'll keep you updated on all of this. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. You can visit us at puck.news and on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you next week. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.